0: Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at SiriusXM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, then join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on SiriusXM Business Radio.
1: Hi. I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and shakers of the craft beer industry, as well as beer lovers from other realms of popular culture. As always, I'm here in the tap room with my co host, JWB's Director of Operations, Maria Cabre. Hello, Maria. Hi, John. Who's our first guest this week?
2: Our next guest is the founder of Charlestown Fermentary in Charleston, South Carolina. Their motto is Hop Forward Yeast Driven which also happens to be a great description of their renowned IPAs. They describe themselves as a small neighborhood brewery just west of the Ashley River. Their beers, however, have gained national attention and have made Charlestown Fermentary a destination for beer tourists visiting the lovely port city on the Atlantic.
1: Welcome to the Beer Hour, Adam Goodwin. Thank you for joining us today.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys.
1: It's it's a pleasure to have you on uh, all the way from... uh, charleston south carolina and uh, we do appreciate you coming on the show today all right so let's get this one out of the way so in in a layperson's terms what is the difference between a fermentory and a brewery
3: (laughs) yeah well when i opened uh charlestown fermentary the idea was that we were going to be really focusing on you know what fermentation is beyond beer i mean the idea originally was to you know do kombuchas and you know just kind of other stuff and really have fun with with bacteria and and yeast um we found pretty quickly that just trying to keep up with the beer demand has really put some of the other projects on hold for now okay um so so yeah that for me was kind of kind of the idea when when i went with you know opening a fermentary
1: i mean we're I mean you really originally had plans to do like canned kombucha or like bottled kombucha, like different flavors and stuff?
3: Uh, not necessarily. Um, I mean the focus in terms of, you know, our, our distro and our <clears throat> our main product is is obviously beer. I mean that's right. That's right. really where my passion lies and, and what I really enjoy doing. Um But, you know, with the idea that we were kind of trying to build a a small, more community focused type of place, um, we just wanted to have fun with that kind of stuff to have other options when people come to visit us that, you know, yeah, we have the beer, obviously, and hopefully a a solid tap list, but that we would also have kind of some other fun stuff that would be fun for us to play with. Yeah, of course,
1: of course. So while you were in school, you took a summer job working at a local brewery, bottling, canning, cleaning. How did that early experience Influence your eventual career path to opening a brewery.
3: Yeah, it's funny actually. When um, you know, I I got into brewing beer really young, and I had a you know in my small town growing up, we uh, I was good friends with people that owned the brewery, the only brewery there, um, and so I really never thought that this was going to be my career. At that point, it was you know you're young, so you're it's like oh. Brewery. It's a fun place to work, you know, and steal beer every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, you know, uh, what I learned later on was I was, um, you know, I was just doing things like packaging, warehouse, delivery, stuff like that. But what I, you know, that stuff is also important and it's so foundational to the, you know, beyond just, um, you know, when you're running a brewery. Uh, making the beer is obviously super important but there are so many other things as you guys know uh involved and it's you know that was really foundational experience for me in terms of actually running a business and what it took you know beyond uh you know just making the beer
1: yeah i mean it's it's why i quit my nine to five job and went to work at cigar city for for pennies but you know i wanted to learn the business kind of inside out because like you said it's more than just brewing beer you know it's learning how to package, learning how to clean the tanks, learning how to, you know, just it's the whole process, even how to sell the beer, how to get a dist- you know d- distribution going. There's so many other facets within just a brewery than just making beer that I think you have to know that all that other stuff just as well as you know how to brew beer. I mean, yeah, it, and
3: there's so many and there's so many different ways to do everything. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, there's, every experience you can get is good experience because so you can distill all that down and you can figure out what ultimately you think is the best way to do it right. you know you can take little bits and pieces from from all those experiences and from you know what you learn I mean that's the beauty of you know doing collabs and stuff like that right you you spread ideas you share ideas and kind of see what everyone else is doing and then kind of come up with the, the way that works best for you and your situation so w- when did you
1: decide along this path? When did you decide to open Charlestown?
3: Um, so that would have been, uh, about, I guess, tw- end of 2014. Um, oh, wow. okay. Yeah. I was working, uh, in Boston. You were at, uh, at were Trillium. you at Trillium? Yeah. And, um, you know, when I had decided that I wanted to open my own place, uh, I basically just started putting together the idea, you know, the business plan for the fermentary, um, the Charlestown part, uh, that kind of came after, uh, my wife and I decided that we were going to move to Charleston, um, and in it here. So, yeah.
1: How long did you, I mean, so wait a second, you worked at Trillium in 2014. So were you mashing in, in the dairy tanks?
3: I was, yeah. I actually, uh, I actually, a friend of mine and I actually built the false bottom for that dairy tank.
1: Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. That's awesome. How long were you there?
3: Um, So I was there for, you know, a few months before the actual opening. Right. Um, and then I was there until the spring of 2014.
1: Nice. Nice. And then you guys, you and your wife moved down to Charlestown and mm-hmm. immediately started laying out Charlestown from formatory or no?
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, throughout kind of the summer of, uh, 2014, I was coming down here and visiting and, uh, working with a friend, you know, looking at, uh, spaces. Um, and then I finally found a place, uh, signed a lease in November of 2015. Nice. Uh, and then, we opened in December of 2016.
1: Nice. So you guys are going on, what, six years now?
3: Uh, yeah, we just had our fifth fifth anniversary a couple months ago.
1: Nice. So you're going on six Assuming years. Assuming my awesome.
3: timeline is correct. But yes, we have, <laughs> I know we're five. I know we're five. All of those, I mean, you guys know what it's like. Those, oh, yeah. those first few years, everything was just... A blur. You know, it's a blur. And, yeah. and, you know, before the startup here, it was... The startup at Trillium and then the startup at Tired Tiredan. So I feel like the last decade of my life has just been a startup and it's just, it's been man.
1: That's amazing, dude. So since we are on the business channel, how did you go about financing the opening of Charlestown?
3: Um, so I was able to, I approached banks, obviously I was, uh, so, you know, 10 years ago, I was just, you know, more or less just out of college. Um, that was when I met the guys at Tired Hands. Um but uh so yeah, long story short, I needed I needed financing, obviously. Uh but I you know I actually approached a bank with a really polished business plan. Um and that was surprisingly enough for them to say, okay, here's the terms. Uh and then I was able to find a, um an investor at the time um to actually acquire the loan. And then, uh, yeah, and then I was able to buy out the investor about uh, a year and a half after we opened. And oh, wow. That's that. That's
1: that. That's so that, you were yeah. you, you actually able to generate enough revenue and capital to actually buy the original investor out. That's, that's pretty awesome. So it's just you yourself as the owner now? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing, dude. So when you guys started up, what size system did you guys start with?
3: So we started on the same 15 that we're using now. Um, just based on sort of the my past experience, I felt that would sort of be the right size to where we're not doing many, if any, uh, double brew days. Uh, that should be enough that we can you know, keep our uh, our tap room uh, supplied uh, with pretty minimal uh, distribution, really, in the business plan.
1: So, I mean... Um, So your original business plan was to really try to concentrate as much taproom focused sales versus really shifting to majority of it being to distro.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I know a lot of models are shifting that way and I think, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a great model. I mean, especially with just there's so much beer out there and there's so much good beer being made these days too. Um, There's a lot of good brewers out there. Yes. Um, My focus really has just always been though, creating, creating a community space, um, creating something that, yeah, obviously, you know, the the beer is super important. Um, The quality is super important, but, you know, being, being important I think to your community is also kind of an important aspect of what we do. Um, and that's just really always been one of my main focuses with the business. So, so yeah, I mean, creating that space, getting people in here, kind of creating a meeting space for the for the neighborhood. Um, that's really been my goal. Uh, and so, you know, the foundation of that is obviously good quality beer. You want, you always, want people to always come there. <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want be able to come for the beer. Absolutely, I, I exactly. would agree with that. Yeah. So, I mean, you are known for your approachable. IPAs, why did you choose to lead with that beer style, and why is it important to make them approachable, you think?
3: I think it's important to make every beer you make uh, approachable. Right, uh, right, You know, the...
1: Well, the I, I, important- I mean, I, I don't know, because we make a lot of heavy hitter, uh, you know, big stouts, so I don't know if I would <laughs> considerably call them approachable, but I mean, people still drink the crap out of them, so... <laughs> You know, they're
3: approaching. Yes. they're approaching in their in 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 what they are, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think with with everything, I mean, especially your your beers that people are are drinking a lot of, right? Right. Like, so people drink a lot of IPAs. People drink a lot of loggers. Um, I think the 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 idea that a beer has a drinkability is, is super important. You know, an approachability you, you want your art, you want your IPAs to be really exciting for your seasoned IPA drinker. Um, really bright, really, really punchy. But at the same time, you know, if you want your bar, if you are going to be a, uh, you know, a community type place, you're going to have people coming in that are not just your beer nerds. Absolutely and i think i think i think especially the hazy ipas it's it's such a good uh, it's such a good bridge for those two demographics because a lot of people that think oh i don't you know i don't like hoppy beer i don't like ipas you know they have a really well made well balanced ipa and they go oh wait i take that back i love hops <laughs> i love i love IPA.
1: yes and I agree. I see, i've i have
3: mean, i've seen that happen so many times cuz people just have this conception of what you know IPAs are, but
1: bitter beer right they think it is bitter right. beer, I think, that's, I think that stigma has been stuck with us for for decades now
3: forever it,
1: you know it, yeah. well I, I mean I, I, he's been around it obviously. I mean, when we were in that um, West Coast IPA uh, takeover when it was everybody's idea to see IBU. how many the IBU wars,, Yep. how many IBUs you mm-hmm. could stuff into a beer, I mean when even though theoretically you can only get to a certain point. I mean, it was still, I think people were like, I think that did a little bit of damage because those beers, I mean, I remember drinking those beers. Were they great beers? Yeah, but there was a lot of palate raking bitterness coming across, you know, but I think these, these IPAs nowadays, like the stuff that you're making is completely different. You know what I mean? It is more approachable. It is a softer bitterness. It's softer on the palate, but with more hop flavor, hop aroma and just a completely different aspect. It's like on the other side of the spectrum for, you know, as far as IPAs go.
3: Yeah, you don't feel like, uh, you know, you don't feel like it's a challenge to get through one and you're just trying to do it because you're trying to pretend that you are. For
2: for our listeners that didn't Google what IBU stands for, it's International Bittering bittering units. Units.
1: Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been there a few times. You know, it seems like Charleston is at the top of every list of best places to live in the country. Uh, I would probably agree a few years back readers of travel and leisure voted Charleston the number one city in the world. Why does everybody love Charleston so much? And what is the craft beer scene like for you guys?
3: Um, so I'll start with uh, kind of a funny story that, you know, kind of goes along with our, our previous conversation about, you know, what IPAs are. Um, When I first opened uh, the one, you know, the first IPA that we ever made, which was one of the beers that we opened with was our Sungazer IPA, which we still make to this day. It's our most popular beer um, in terms of, you know, uh, sales and, you know, the amount that we make of it. Um, But, you know, we'd have people coming in, you know, groups of people coming in. And I, I remember this one time because when we first opened, I was obviously, you know, making all the beer and then bartending all night. And I remember this, we had this group of, uh, bicyclists come in and we must've been open for a week. There's like five of them. And the guy comes up to the bar and he orders, uh, an IPA for everybody. So I go and I pour all these IPAs and I put all of this hazy IPA in front of him and he's kind of looking at it and says, we ordered the IPAs. <laughs> and so I, you know, had to explain to him, you know, what, what a new England style or a hazy IPA was, um. And I said, you know, smell it, taste it, trust me, you'll like it. And, you know, 10 minutes later, he came up and ordered another round of, of IPAs for nice. everybody. Nice. Um, and so that's sort of, uh, that was sort of a realization for me at that point uh, of, you know, it's a different um, culture. The, the, the beer culture was at a different point then that was, you know, yeah. five years ago. Right. Um, here it was exciting for me. I mean, that was why Charleston was such a cool, um, option for me in terms of opening a uh, spot for opening a brewery. Cause I felt like there was a lot of room, but you had a lot of people that were really, really eager. Um, you know, Charleston has an amazing food scene, Yes. uh, obviously, you know, amazing beaches. Yep. Um, there's, there's a lot going on here and it's, and it's evolving too. I mean, as we get, you know, more people moving to town, um, you know, our once great culinary scene is now even better. Yep. Um, you know, we have now 36 breweries. Holy
1: uh, crap. In, yeah, I had no idea.
3: We're not a big city. Charleston is not a big city. No. Well, that's amazing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, over the last even five years since we've been open, um, we've got more diversity in our food. We've got, you know, uh, obviously ton of options when it comes to you know our our breweries. We've got a couple cool distilleries that are open. We've got a couple of really great coffee roasters that are open now. So there's a lot more of that sort of like crafty type of stuff that's um been going on and it's and it's really exciting and it keeps it interesting, I think, for tourists. I think it keeps them coming back. You know, you you have a lot of people that they come to Charleston, they have a great time and then they come back. I mean I see people in the tap room once, twice, three times a year that I just enjoy coming here. That's amazing. And good.
1: visit. That's amazing.
2: You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, and we're speaking to Adam Goodwin of Charlestown Fermentary.
1: So like every other brewery in America, I think we, we've felt the recent emergence of craft loggers. Your signature yacht party is always on people's list as one of the best in the country. How did you go about creating Yacht Party?
3: Man, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of uh, sort of the origins of that beer. I think, I think really, um, you know, we always wanted to have sort of a light lager as an option here. Right. You know, I mean, we're we're in light lager country. Yes. Uh, down here in South Carolina, um, and so, you know, I think we always, with people coming in, you know, everyone wants you know, uh who maybe isn't necessarily really into craft beer, there there's always that question is of if we have something that's that's light or, you know, what's the lightest beer, that sort of thing. That's kind of a common question I think that tap rooms here is, you know, what's the lightest or, you know, what's the closest thing you have to a domestic, as you know, we tend to be asked for. Yep. Um so at the same time it's I mean you guys know this. It's hot and it's humid down here oh. <laughs> yeah, mo- so, most of the year. most um, of the year, yes. So there's a lot of times when, you know, that's just what we want to drink, you know, after, after a long hot brew day. Um, so I kind of set out to create, you know, basically the version of a light lager that I wanted to, to have available all the time and what I wanted to drink all the time. Um, and when we first brewed it, it was not super popular, uh, You know, we sold, we sold plenty of it to, you know, the people that came in and wanted that lighter beer. Um, but you know, we where we actually had the most success with it was giving it out for free to all the brewers (laughs) at all. So, uh, and, and we, and I try to bring some now because we brew it so frequently now, but we, we just really stuck with it. It was one of those things that I really wanted it to work. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of like our version of a lower end domestic uh, lager, but we just tried to kind of take all the things that we liked and didn't like and create this product that we think is, you know, really uh, something that's actually just like really nice to drink.
1: Nice. Nice. So you kind of lean into being, as your as your website says, a small neighborhood brewery something that we seem to ponder always is the question, how big do you want to be? And where do you kind of see yourself in that kind of mix? Like how big do you want to be?
3: Well, how big I want to be is only relevant for as long as, as it makes sense. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so we, uh, we're small. We still are small. We did just under 1500 barrels last year. um, that being said, we have expanded our uh, production every year since we've been open. Um, so how big do I want to be? I guess the easiest answer is I don't want to be that big. It's not a goal of mine. Right. Um, I'm fortunate that I don't have uh, a lot of investors or any investors. Right. Um, and, you know, with our focus being on the tap room, as you know, you know, you're, you are it's obviously going to be better if you can cut out, you know, a distributor and of you
1: know,
3: yeah. to sell your beer. Um, so my goal is not necessarily a production number. Uh, what I, where I would like to be is at a point where I can comfortably pay all my staff to where they are happy and, and comfortable and feel like they can make a living, uh, working here. Um, I don't want them to feel like they're just in a job. I want my employees to feel like they have found a place uh, in a career, a home. Um, and I don't, and I want to get to a point where I can work, a a, you know, a normal, you know, 40, 50, maybe 60 hour (laughs) a week. Um, and, and, and I'm good, you know, and, and, uh, just, you know, live comfortably. I'm that's, that's my goal. Um, and, what that number is from a production standpoint, you know, I don't know if I can get to that, you know, I'm at 1500, if I can get to maybe 2000 barrels, right. Hire a couple more people. Uh, I think everyone can kind of be comfortable at that point and be happy. And, and then we'll just kind of see what happens from there.
1: That's awesome, brother. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time and, uh, hopefully we will see you very soon yeah. i think we, we actually need to get on the horse and actually go to charleston yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah we've been talking about this charleston trip for like two years I now i know.
3: I feel like i just keep hearing about
2: it i know
1: i know we're just
2: gonna show up one day and be like hey adam <laughs> hey, we're finally hey, here. here
1: dude i'm just here <laughs> Door,
3: door's always open guys thank you I, I
1: appreciate you. it brother thank we'll you very you much soon. and we will see you soon man
3: appreciate it guys Cheers. thanks for having me You're listening to The
0: Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield, conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture.
2: Our next guest has introduced countless Americans to species from across the animal kingdom. From his award-winning wildlife photography, to his national television appearances, to his role as one of the country's most recognizable conservationists. He has educated and inspired generations to respect and appreciate the amazing diversity of animal life that we share the planet with. Along the way, he has won six Emmy Awards for his work on nature documentary programs and a Wildlife Ambassador Award in 2006. The endowment that he created, which bears his name, continues his lifelong mission of conservation.
1: Welcome to the Bear Hour, Ron McGill. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining us today. We're, uh, <laughs> me and Maria are very very much enthused to uh have you on the show today um, my pleasure so there i mean someone here on the show is obviously a ron Miguel super fan i think she has a, <laughs> a, a a poster on her wall as she was growing up we're not going to mention who that is but um <laughs> t- take us back to the very beginning your family moved from manhattan to perine florida when you were 12 your parents bought a five acre parcel of land is that where your love of animals started
0: Actually, you know, my love of animals started since I can remember being a little boy, Uh, growing up in a small apartment there in New York City. uh, You know, uh, kids today, they're very lucky because I tell them they've got this incredible variety of programming. You've got National Geographic Channel, Animal Planet, Discovery Network, all these great wildlife programs. When I was a kid, there was one show. It was on, on Sunday nights, 730, right before the wonderful world of Disney. It was called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. There was a guy on that show, the two hosts. There was Marvin Perkins, who was the main host. And then there was Jim Fowler, who was his co-host. And Jim is the guy who did all the cool stuff, man. I'd watch Jim <laughs> Fowler jumping out of helicopters on top of caribou. I watched him rappel down a mountain, grabbing condors with one hand. I that's saw amazing. him catch a Jaguar <laughs> in the Amazon with nothing but a thrown net. The guy was a god. Okay? <laughs> so I'd watch him and I'd say to myself, that's what I want to do. That was my life. I really wanted to do that. I said, I want to be a wildlife veterinarian. OK, um, you know, fast forward, I my first chemistry cor- course at the University of Florida told me how to come up with plan B. Veterinary school was not in the motion. But <laughs> anyway, the bottom line is, I knew I wanted to work with animals. I'm, not, I'm the kind of guy. Listen, if I had to put on a suit and tie and go to an office every day, I would lose my mind. If I'm putting on a suit and tie, it means I'm going out to a really nice dinner with my wife and it's going to be a really nice evening. Other than that, if I had to do it every day, it would take away the novelty. Anyway, I digress. So I am, um, you know. I would go to the zoo with my mom, the Bronx Zoo, as a little kid. I would teach the squirrels in New York City how to eat out of my hands. The same thing with the pigeons. I fell in love with these animals because you know they were they were true. They were transparent. They were they were not faking me out. They were not lying to me. An animal—that's the great thing about an animal. It doesn't have that that ability or that that capacity. I think to to be a liar, to be uh, something that's going to fool you or trick you. They're they're kind of true. So. That, would, that, that created the bond. Um, when we moved down here to Florida, my gosh, it just opened up this huge window because of all the natural treasures we have down here in South Florida. My first trip to the Everglades, my, my gosh, see my first alligator, you thought I would have won the lotto. It was like, holy Jesus, <laughs> an alligator. I'd only seen this in cartoons and pictures, you know, That's amazing. Um, you know bald eagles, ospreys, um, foxes, deer, all this stuff all around my neighborhood growing up. It was amazing hearing the mockingbirds, hearing the blue jays, hearing all the birds singing. So this natural treasure that we have here in South Florida just served to feed that passion that I had for wildlife. And it went on from there. You know, when we moved out, my dad was a contractor, so he built a house on five acres that we eventually, I grew up in. And, you know, I would rescue things like owls and hawks and rehabilitate them and release them back to the wild uh, if I saw an injured animal, I mean, and I just kind of taught myself, you know, there was no internet back then. There no, was nothing that no, I could reference not to. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at the Encyclopedia Britannica. Okay. For those of you who are really old, you know, uh, so, so we didn't have those, those kinds of references. So I kind of self-taught myself and, uh, and it just became, just became part of the fiber of who I am. That's amazing.
2: So you joined Zoo Miami as a zookeeper in 1980, which means you have been employed there in various capacities now as communications director for nearly 42 years. How has the Zoo Miami changed and evolved over the years?
0: Well, you know, when I started, I started actually before Zoo Miami was built. It was originally called Miami Metro Zoo, but there was a zoo called the Cranon Park Zoo out on Key Biscayne. It was a tiny little zoo. It was a beautiful piece of property. And I got to be honest with you, I'm not going to lie. As a 20 year old starting working there, it was great because all the ladies from the beach would come to the zoo in their bikinis and bathing suits. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I've died and gone to heaven. I'm working with animals and I'm looking at beautiful people walking through the park all the time. It was wonderful. But the fact is the park was beautiful. The zoo itself was not. The animals were in tiny cages, you know, the classic bars, concrete floors, there was nothing even representative of their environment. There wasn't a tree, a waterfall, nothing like that that you see in these multi-million-dollar exhibits today. So it was more exhibiting in an animal without really a conservation message behind it. It was kind of like going to the circus and seeing a freak show, you know? Yeah. So what we did was we started to realize zoos have evolved to become conservation organizations. It's not just putting an animal on exhibit. And that's something I think is real important that people learn to decipher the difference between a roadside attraction and a good accredited zoo. You know, I'm sure a lot of people have seen that train wreck of a show, Tiger King. Yeah, that is that is everything that is wrong with keeping animals in captivity. Yeah. Okay. Uh, And that you know that, that 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 put a huge stain on good zoos because people started lumping everything together. They started painting with a broad brush, and that's not what it is. So. What I tell people is that a good zoo is doing conservation work to protect the animals they they put on exhibit in the wild. I'll say something that'll make a lot of your listeners probably kind of scratch their heads a bit. And that is that as someone who's worked in a zoo for 42 years, in a perfect world, there wouldn't be any zoos. In a perfect world, everybody would be able to go to the Serengeti to see an elephant, uh, you know, go to the Arctic to see a polar bear, um, you know, go to the Amazon to see a, a, a taper. So these things don't exist because people don't have the ability to do that. And that's the value of zoos. Zoos, good zoos, provide windows into that world, you see. And that's what happened to me when I went to the Bronx Zoo as a kid. That planted a seed in me that continued to grow into this passion that I have for wildlife today. And I'm very thankful to that experience because, listen, no matter what people tell you, there's nothing, no picture in a book, no images on television can duplicate the feeling you get when you look at a live animal eye to eye. There's a connection there. And that's the value of a zoo in planting that seeding kids and hopefully in contributing to conservation in the wild. And this is something I'll tell people that they need to demand of their zoos. If you're gonna go to a zoo, you ask the zoo, what are you doing for these animals in the wild? What justifies you keeping this animal in captivity? Because I would never support taking an animal out of the wild and putting it in captivity, unless number one, it was the last ditch effort to save that animal's life. Number two, to save the species. What people need to realize when you come to a place like Zoo Miami, Ninety nine percent of all the animals you see here are animals that have been born under human care, never taken out of the wild.
1: But there is definitely I mean, I mean, growing up, going to the zoo. I mean, I remember in the 80s going to Metro Zoo, you know, because I grew up here in Miami and seeing like the the evolution of the zoo. I oh, mean, yeah. There, there is definitely a place for the zoos. I mean, not, like I think you have mentioned that we have saved certain species from extinction because of having zoos.
0: Oh, there's no question about it. You know, you look at something like the California condor. This is an animal that there was a time there were only 22 left on the planet. And the decision was made. We got to pull them out because they were dying from lead poisoning. You see, condors are basically big vultures. And what they were doing is they were going after the remains of things like bighorn sheep and stuff that had been hunted with people using lead bullets. And that's what was killing them. So there was no way of really guaranteeing that we were going to save them. There was a huge campaign to stop using lead and bullets that has gone very successfully. But until then, we had to take these last 22 out, breathe them in captivity, and release them back in the wild. Now there are hundreds of California condors. I just saw them just recently in the Grand Canyon, flying over the Grand Canyon. That's what a amazing. beautiful sight and understanding that they would not have been there had it not been for zoos. Same thing with Arabian oryx. Same thing with black-footed ferrets, red wolves. These are species of animals that would have become extinct had it not been for zoos. So they do play a vital role in that sense. Having said that, I think it's important that people realize the overwhelming majority of animals you see in zoos, we do not introduce into the wild. Right. Uh, zoos really are, for lack of a better term, an insurance policy against a very uncertain future in the wild. Because to to raise an animal under human care and properly prepare it to live in the wild is a huge challenge. You took any of the, if I, if I were to take any of these animals here at the zoo today and just release them into the wild, they, they would die.
1: They would not make it. Yeah, they wouldn't they make would, it.
0: They have not been taught the instincts of survival that they need to have to survive. But if we know we have to do that, we would raise animals totally differently. I agree.
2: Yeah. So I imagine as a human being, there's no way to not get emotionally attached to some of these animals. But I'm sure as a professional, you're trained to kind of not do it. However, has there been a passing of an animal um, within the zoo within your time there that has really affected you?
0: Many times. Listen, uh, I don't know how you can train somebody to not become emotionally involved. They can tell us not to become emotionally involved, but we're human beings. And uh, I would dare say to you that if someone can work with an animal for years and that animal passes and they don't have an emotional void, an emotional loss that they feel, I don't really want to work with that person. I got to be honest with you because I don't think that's human. I I think it's natural. Granted, yes, we don't want to, you know, go overboard and say, oh my God. But I know that there have been several animals that I have seen here born. I've seen them pass away, living long lifespans. As a matter of fact, a couple of them were the record uh, length for their life, uh, uh, under human care, the longest living of their species wow. ever known. Wow. And yet when they, when they pass, you know, I cried, I'm not ashamed to say this. I'm six foot six, 235 pounds, but I cried. I, I sobbed in some of those He's cases. He's taller than you, John.
1: Yeah. Uh, that's a first.
2: Wow. John six, five.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there yeah. we go. All right, John, my kind of guy.
0: Um, so, so, you know, my thing was I, 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 cried and I'm not ashamed to say I cried because it was, it was a huge loss. Um, you know, these, these are things people need to understand. We don't treat these animals like our pets. They're not our pets. No. It does not mean, however, that we don't become emotionally attached to them.
1: So you are a noted conservationist. Many scientists believe we could be on the cusp of, of a, a sixth great extinction. This one being Absolutely. completely man-made, of course. Many report that species of bacteria, fungi, plants, and animals are disappearing at a rate of 100 to 1,000 times higher than normal. Do you believe that this is true? And if so, what can be done to kind of stop this where it's at?
0: Uh, I do believe it's true. Um, And, you know, I want to preface this by saying this. Extinction is a normal process in Earth, okay? You know, the dinosaurs became extinct, um, had nothing to do with man. There are animals that have become extinct that has nothing to do with man. Extinction is a normal process. However, the rate of extinction we're feeling today, we're seeing today, has been accelerated by man. And that is not natural. And that is not allowing the earth to come into balance. Uh, A UN report came out not too long ago, nonpartisan UN report that said, if we continue on this trajectory in 50 years, we're gonna lose 1 million species of animals. This this is called the Anthropocene. Uh, It's the greatest rate of extinction since the dinosaurs. And it is a direct cause of mankind. You know, the burning of fossil fuels, the, the things that are going on are just happening at such a rate that the planet cannot keep up. And John Maria, I want to tell you something, and this is going to sound a little bit cold. Um, the earth is not going to die. Right. We as humans will die before the earth dies. Right. And I'm not an extremist guys. I'm not, you know, listen, if I'm in my house and there's a roach walking across the floor in the roundhouse, it's dead. I'm stepping on it. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> of one course. of these people. Oh no, that deserves to live because it has a lot. No. It's in my house, it's dead. That's what I call <laughs> natural selection. Okay? Correct, correct. If you're on, yes, if you're, if you're outside, cool, you can live on outside, not in my house. Okay, That's so amazing. I don't come across as that extremist. But having said that, people need to realize that all of this life is connected, man. Everything's connected, you know. Um,
1: there's a chain, there's a chain, absolutely. It's
0: yeah. a chain, it, you know. When you talk about things. And I mention it to people all the time, whether it be the bees that are pollinating the fruits and vegetables oh, that help feed us, oh, yeah. whether it be the coral reefs and mangroves that protect our shores yep. and provide breeding grounds for the fish that we eat and keep yep. the oceans healthy, whether it be the, 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 the tropical rainforests that produce the medicines and help mm. provide the air that we breathe. It's all connected to us. Yep. It's connected to our quality of life. The Everglades, we talk about, you know, that's our that's our source of water that we drink. Okay, so what I'm trying to tell people is that by protecting this wildlife, we are protecting ourselves.
1: Yes, that's what
0: we're doing. We're protecting ourselves. You know, there's an old saying that says we have not inherited this earth from our parents. We're borrowing it from our children. Uh, and, And the reality is we have a moral obligation to protect this stuff so that. My kids and their kids after that can see the same things I was able to see. You know, I've, I've been so fortunate in traveling around the world many times. And I think about some of the things that I've seen 25 years ago that are no longer there. And for me, I'm ashamed to have to bring my child there one day and say, there used to be leopards here. Okay, there used to be this here. I see it right here in South Florida. When I grew up, not far from the crossings, as a little boy, I remember hearing the call of the Bob White quail all the time. Bob White? We really had, oh, we had Bob White down here. Oh, we had Bob White like crazy. That's
2: crazy. I remember hearing them all the
0: time and seeing the coveys flying off. Okay. Wow. wow. I haven't seen a Bob White quail down here in 20 years. Wow. And it's, it's just, it's just showing how things are changing, yep. but we can make a difference. And I think, I think it's the kids today, especially the young generation that's doing such wonderful things. You know, you see these environmental clubs in the schools. I didn't have that growing up. No. I mean, you see people doing the recycling programs, you know, yeah. I didn't have recycling growing up. Like I tell the story all the time. I said, you know, I drove the biggest monstrous hot rod you've ever seen in your life. The thing <laughs> got like, I always say negative seven miles to the gallon. Okay. And That's I was amazing. cool driving that thing back when I was 16, 17 years old. I drive a car like that today and I want to get dirty looks. Oh, of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. get dirty the kid who's driving the Prius saying I'm being responsible and you're not, yep. yeah. you know, I finally, finally have been able to order an electric car that um, I can fit in, you know, now you, you being six, five there, John, yep. you know, it's not easy to get no. in some of these cars. Okay. So I'm six, six, but I finally, because I felt guilty driving this, this gas car that I had to use to transport animals back and forth. So I had to have a, a, a big SUV, Yep. you know? Um, so, so these are things I think kids now are kind of, they're leading the way. They have a voice, they have a vote, which is even more important. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think they understand the value of it. So that's, that's one thing I give credit to social media for. On the right. other hand, I'm not a big fan of social media because I find the social media be kind of like the toilet bowl of the internet sometimes. Yes. <laughs> but, yes. but, but, but having said that, I think that it does provide a platform for, for kids' voices to be heard. And you know, there's another old saying, I'm full of old sayings because I'm an old man, and that is when the people lead, the leaders will follow. Right. Yeah. And when kids can motivate themselves and get together and create these movements, I think they can make these legislators, these politicians, you know, it can influence their decisions.
2: You're listening to the beer hour and we're speaking to Ron McGill of zoo Miami. Ron, tell us a little bit about, uh, the Ron McGill conservation endowment. What is it? And how can we help?
0: Well, I really appreciate you asking. It is the thing I am most proud of in my entire career. Uh, when I came to work here 42 years ago, I didn't come to work for an attraction. I wanted to work for an organization that was going to save animals in the wild. Um, Honestly, the first several years working here, I didn't see that as much as I wanted to. I saw them spending millions of dollars building new exhibits with all kinds of bells and whistles on them, but I didn't see that money going into the wild to protect these animals. And I said to myself, I, I think we're being hypocrites, guys. I think that we need to invest in protecting these animals in the wild. That- that's the only thing that will justify keeping them in captivity. Well, they kind of poo-pooed me, and I said, you know what? Excuse my French, I just said, screw this. I'm just going to raise money myself, and I'm going to create an endowment. And an endowment is something where you, you raise a certain amount of money that you don't touch and you invest it. And that endowment then produces dividends that you then can invest that money. And the main reason I set it up as an endowment was because sustainability is everything here. You know, you can raise money for something, you spend the money, and then you got to raise money again. And it just keeps on beating you up. So I said to myself, I'm going to go and start an endowment. And they kind of looked at me and said, oh, yeah, fine, go ahead, do it. And then I said to myself, what did I just do? Because I'm not a (laughs) a fundraiser. I'm not a development guy. I'm a passionate wildlife guy, you know? And I knew to have any kind of success with an endowment, I would have to raise a minimum of $1 million. Man, I've never seen a million dollars in my life. I'm a zookeeper. And I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? But listen, I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. But I don't know about that. I don't know. No, I'm really not. I'm really not. (laughs) But I think I'm a good storyteller for things that I believe in. And I think we're lacking that a lot today in society. We don't have yes. really good storytellers to get people no. engaged, get them no. connected. So I said, I'm going to tell my story. And I started telling them, and, you know, I've been very lucky because in my career, I've done a lot of television and through the television and radio stuff, I've met some influential, affluent, successful people. And I would tell them my story. And they started helping me out. They started just donating money. We created the McGill Conservation Endowment. And whereas I thought it was going to take me 100 years to reach a million dollars, I now have several million dollars that I've been able to raise, That's amazing. Uh, almost three million, actually. That's awesome. wow. And each year I give away almost one hundred thousand dollars, not one penny of that money can be spent in the zoo. That money can only be spent helping conservation programs around the world. Wow. I bought research vehicles uh, for studies of cheetahs in, in, in Kenya. I just bought a, uh, um, a swamp buggy for Corkscrew uh, Nature Reserve uh, off of uh, Naples to, to study the, the swamps out there. Uh, you know, I buy radio collars for giant anteaters to track them and study them. These are things, and I, I provide salaries for rangers to do poaching patrols to try to protect animals. These are the things that that endowment does. Um, you know, people can donate to the endowment. It's 100% tax deductible. They can go to the zoo's website, zooMiami.org, and you can get onto that endowment and donate there. I'll personally write you a letter myself. But, you know, the thing for me that's important that people understand is that when you donate to the endowment, it goes into the corpus of money. That money never actually gets spent. It wow. just builds up wow. to base. So long after all of us are dead and gone, it's still that endowment be is gonna- Continue being there, continue wow. providing money for conservation. Work. What a
2: legacy, Ron. That's, that's, that's that, incredible. That
0: well, I got to, I got to be honest with you. It is the thing I'm most proud of in my life. I got to a point here at the zoo and I said, wow, I don't want to be known as the guy who just went on television with animals or talked about <laughs> animals on radio. I really, I didn't want to, I, I thought that was kind of shallow, you know, and and it's listen, and I want to, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not meaning to insult anybody because there are really some great people on television, but many times television, especially gives credibility to people who absolutely don't deserve it. Right. Oh, you know, there's something about a person who could be on camera and read a teleprompter, okay? Right. And the credit's not going to the guy who writes that stuff, the person who captures all the incredible footage, all of this stuff. You know, and I felt, I, I held a huge chip on my shoulder because to this day, people come up to me, oh my God, you do such great work at the zoo. And I'm really, I'm not really working that hard at the zoo anymore. I'm talking about the people that work hard at the zoo, but you know, I'm riding a wave and it, and it makes me feel kind of like, you know i'm i'm a little bit of a scammer and i don't want to come off that way
2: so as much as you don't like social media i guess the the, the grand scheme of it um i have been watching your bald eagle um yes! with with her eggs and then now some of them hatching so what's the update what's been going on it the national news um i think this is something since we've been having such bad news uh lately this is a, a little bit of good news for us, especially since that is our our uh, national well, animal, right?
1: And, and the parents are actually named Ron and Rita. <laughs> <laughs> after well, you and your wife, say,
0: that's right. They're named that, but I had nothing to do with that. That's something that we were <laughs> honored to do. That we were honored that the Audubon Eagle Watchers and the folks from Southdale uh, from Wildlife uh, rehabilit Rescue of Dade County they uh, they chose to name them that way. Having said that, listen, I I am so happy with this Eagle Cam. Um, You know, it has connected so many people around the world. I just got uh, an email today from a teacher in Spain who sent me a video of her class watching the Eagles every morning when they go in in Spain. Same thing in England, okay, and across the country. We're getting teachers using that as a teaching tool. And, you know, there's another old saying. I may have said it before, but there's a saying that says, in the end, we protect what we love, we love what we understand, and we understand what we're taught. And by showing this live video cam of this very intimate window into a pair of bald eagles, doing something that people rarely get to see. I mean, they're coming in there with all kinds of different fish. They've come in there with mullet, with uh, with um, uh, snappers, with peacock bass, largemouth bass, um, ladyfish. They brought in birds. They brought in ibis. They brought in a coot. They brought in a parrot. They caught a parrot. What? Oh, I hope it wasn't somebody's pet. Um, <laughs> This morning, they were in there with a big old rat they brought in, you know, and watching how delicately they feed and watching how both the male and female divide the responsibility. They're each feeding as much as the other, you know, you know, bald eagles. First of all, they're monogamous for life.
1: Yes. And, And
0: the great thing about them is that once they pair up, they'll actually go and build a nest at the same place every year. They return to the same place every year and they keep on building on that nest. So it's fantastic. So Lloyd Brown, the founder of Wildlife Rescue Dade County, we actually rescued one of their chicks last year. The other one died because the nest was compromised in a storm. They actually picked a really crappy tree to build a nest in. I don't know. Their (laughs) their tree picking was not very good. Having said that, the nest collapsed. We got a call from the Eagle Watcher saying, "Uh uh-oh, the the two chicks have fallen 85 feet. We don't know what the condition is. I went over there with Lloyd. Unfortunately, one of them had died. The other one was in pretty bad shape. Very dehydrated, had an obvious wing injury. We brought it in to the veterinarian, x-rayed it, had a broken wing, had to do surgery on the wing. Experts said, oh, that bird's never going to fly again. We said, screw that. You got to try. We got to see what we can do. Lloyd Brown, I can't say enough about him, did an incredible job in rehabbing this bird. We taught it how to fly. We taught it how to hunt. And then we released it into the uh, right adjacent place, National Park. So it was one of these most emotional moments for me. I mean, I cried when when that bird was released. But then Lloyd said, listen, Ron. Let's see if we can build a platform for them. Okay, so when they come back, because they'll come back to the same tree to nest again, right. they'll have something more secure, better foundation. I said, let's do it. It costs some money, and then we install the cameras. But I paid for all of that through the Ron McGill Conservation Endowment. Wow! And the, the eagle experts said to us, "Oh, they're not going to come back. You put this big platform up there; they're going to be scared away. They're not going to come back and nest there." Well, you know what? They were wrong. <laughs> they <came> back, <laughs> and they started nesting, and they built the nest, and we're watching this whole thing happen. And I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe this is happening. We're watching, and then she laid. Her, her first egg on the eve of Thanksgiving. Yep. It's like a script, guys. She laid her first egg on Thanksgiving Eve. She eventually laid three eggs. Bald eagles usually only lay two eggs. So it was like her telling us, oh, my God, this is a penthouse. We can go big time here. <laughs> so then following the script as if I'm telling you, you can't even write this stuff. When does the first egg hatch? On New Year's Day. Wow. New Year's Day. And uh, the second egg hatched right after that. The third egg hatched five days after that which immediately put it at a horrible disadvantage. I said right after that egg hatched, I would put on the chat online there saying, guys, it's very unlikely that this chick is gonna survive. Right. And, cert- and yeah, sure. surely that chick died overnight because the other two basically smothered it and killed it. You know, people Jeez. don't realize eagles, when they're siblings in a the nest, they don't look at each other It's like, oh, you're my brother, you're my sister, no. I love you so much, no. Your competition for food. And you'll see if you watch the camp, they don't do it as much anymore. But the first several days of their life, one was beating the hell out of the other all the time, trying to take them out. You know, there are cases Jeez. where one chick has thrown another chick out of the nest. OK, so these things happen. Um, and I prepared people for that. I said, listen, when you watch this, you're watching real nature in real time. Right. Right. We are not going to interfere. It's against the law to interfere with anything that happens at an active eagle's nest. But at the same time, I wanted to be transparent with the public. I wanted them to know the challenges that animals face, the struggles in nature, survival of the fittest, yep. which is what it is. It's not some Disney fantasy where everything's happily ever after. No. We're hoping that these birds will raise these chicks to fledge, which, if they do, will be a huge success because eagles are only successful raising chicks. 50% of the time Ooh. and only usually one chick to fledge from a nest. Wow. So we'll see what happens, but they've been great providers, great parents. They've come in with so many different species of fish and birds. And, and, uh, like I said this morning, a rat. So it's been wonderful to watch and it's been even more wonderful to see how many people have become addicted to it.
1: Do you have the, uh, like the, the, the web link or the URL for this? Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, Absolutely. Just go to zoomiami.org and I think it's slash bald eagle dash nest dash cam.
1: Absolutely. So that way our listeners can at least check this, uh, this awesome event that is going on and check there it out. Go. So last question for you. So, sure. so, so many pet owners on social media post that they, they like their pets better than people in, right. in, in, in your opinion. Why are animals better than people?
0: Well, I just think that animals are real. You know, you don't have animals lying to you. You don't have animals stealing from you in the sense. Oh, well, listen, if your dog has access to your plate and the table, oh, not it's do it When you're not looking, he'll <laughs> take it. He'll take it right, honey. Yes. Okay. But again, that's survival of the fittest. It's there's no malice behind yeah. animals. You know, when I when I hear somebody say, "Oh, that's a mean animal," that's a mean animal. Animals aren't mean. Animals are acting by instinct. Yeah. Uh, you know, if a dog has been abused, it's going to be aggressive in a defensive way because it's been abused, okay? A tiger is going to protect its territory uh, if it's threatened. They don't look at somebody and say, I don't like you. I'm just going to take you out. Animals aren't that way. So I try to tell people all the time, I have a little bit of a problem with some of the programming we're seeing today. You know, when I was a kid, like I said, I watched Wild Kingdom was a program that just made you want to go out and learn more about nature. Today, right. I'm seeing too many things like when animals attack the world's deadliest. River <laughs> mos- if I'm a kid watching this stuff, I'm going to say, I'm not going to go outside because something's going to kill me. Exactly. But yes. If you properly respect animals, you should have no reason to be afraid of them. Keep your distance. Watch them from a distance, admire them, and feel lucky that you're able to see them that's amazing
2: yes
1: well thank you very much ron we very very much appreciate your time this is and this
2: is a dream come true so thank you i always hope that I'll,
0: my, i gotta bring my wife there because she is a major beer person she hey bring, beer. Her in. Yeah, bring her in yeah for sure I, I
2: always hope that i'll run into you at the Publix and the crossings but it hasn't happened yet so
1: and i, and I uh <laughs> i gotta I got get my kids back down to the zoo for sure absolutely absolutely yeah we were, we
2: were just there for zoo lights and um I bought one of the wax figurines for my daughter, and the oh first gosh. thing I did was smell it because smell I love it's the smell. It's, it's the smell of our
1: childhood. I remember those yep. from when I grew up. Yep. Those are amazing. They're
2: still there. Yeah. So, yes. And my Absolutely. daughter loves it. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you much,
1: Ron. Thank you for hey, your time. It's been a
0: real pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for the invitation. Take Thanks. care.
1: Thank you. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Adam Goodwin and Ron McGill, my co-host, Maria Cabre, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, James Maresca. Thank you for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132. Replays are on Saturdays at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 1 p.m. or anytime on the Sirius XM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, people, the thirst is real.